Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Amped. How are you, Dave? I'm doing well. How are you, Peggy? I'm doing okay. We're a little later this week. Uh, The past week and a half has been very hectic for both of us on our respective professional fronts, traveling and then playing catch up from travel. So uh, we apologize for dropping our Monday podcast on Wednesday, but uh, thank you for bearing with us. Yes, the travel has been a bit out of control for both of us. Yes. So, well, more so for you. Anytime I have to travel for work, it's a bit out of control because it's so far out of my norm. But you travel all the time. I do. I do. But this is, it's been, it's been a little more frenetic than normal it, for it's the last been, few weeks. Yes. You've been busier than, than normal. So I hope you can relax soon um, and spend some quality time at home. And, you know, Mother's Day is this Sunday. Just a reminder to all of our listeners out there don't forget your moms. Yes. Don't screw that up. Yes. My husband can talk to anybody about how to screw up Mother's Day. <laughs> He's got, he's cornered the market on that. He has, he has. Um, you know, so my motto is, you know, all I want is coffee in bed. Just do that and you're good. And somehow he always seems to kind of forget. So, you know, hmm. he, he sets the expectations very low. And part of me wonders if it's on purpose. That way he can kind of catapult to the top when he does do something. So it's all good. Well, I think I'm going to wait anxiously for a story next week about how Mother's Day went for you. <laughs> there you go. I will fill everybody in in the next podcast. Excellent. So we have a fun topic today, um, and it's it's geared especially for new amputees. However, I think that that even seasoned amputees and individuals with limb difference will appreciate the information that we're providing because we're going through a, how does your prosthesis get made? Yes. And this came about, I actually, Peggy, uh, I thought of this uh, for a few reasons. Uh, One, we had someone um, on our network reach out to us and specifically ask the question sort of, you know, I'm, I'm about to, I'm a few, few weeks post amputation. I'm about to have my first appointment tomorrow. What should I expect? And I realized we've never done anything really like this. And that came right on the back of a, a, a relative through my mother-in-law, one of my mother-in-law's relatives, um, reaching out to me because her husband actually just lost his leg um, due to he's had a, you know, a, a pretty rough go of it for the last few years with a variety of vascular issues and uh, just became an above the knee amputee. And I referred her to a bunch of resources on our site and realized we've never done a podcast just about sort of right. prosthetic fabrication 101 you know how does it work how many appointments does it usually take what 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 does it consist of uh so uh, it, it kind of hit a nice little sweet spot and it's something that uh is probably long overdue from us i i think it's an interesting topic and i think that you know it's something that especially if you're not somebody who has been through this process before maybe a family member or a friend um it's it's just good information to know that when we say you know, I have to go, you know, I, I just say I have to go get a new leg. That's that's the terminology that I use um, just because prosthesis just doesn't roll off my tongue comfortably, like in casual conversations. So I'll just refer to it as my leg. So I'll say I'll have to, I have to go get a new leg. And most people do not know what that all entails. So in this podcast, we are going to go over um, 
the, the basic steps. This is a generalization. It is going to vary depending on your practitioner and how they choose to work. So we're trying to provide just a basic overview of the processes. Yeah. And do you want to, do you want to walk through sort of our high level talking points? Or you want me to do that? You can do that. Okay. So in general, uh, typically it's around three appointments to make your prosthesis. There are three steps involved. Uh, the first step is actually creating a replica of your residual limb. And there are a few different ways to do that. The dominant ones uh, today uh, that most prosthetists use would either be casting, hand casting, or CAD CAM. And we'll explain what CAD CAM is. Then there's a second appointment, uh, generally referred to as a diagnostic socket evaluation. Diagnostic sockets are also commonly referred to as check sockets because you're checking the fit. And then there's finally delivery of the, or test socket too, that's right. And then the third step is delivery of the full prosthesis. The timeline to complete all of these steps can vary. In general, it tends to be measured in weeks not days. However, there are uh, instances where it can be considerably faster than that, and we'll explain uh, why and how that might happen. So we're going to cover the process and the timeline in detail in this podcast. Sounds good. All right, so I will start with the first step, um, which is creating a replica of your limb or limbs. Um, and that is going to be uh, basically to create the socket. The socket is the part of the prosthesis that, that attaches to your limb, um, and holds whatever components you need, your foot and ankle or the knee joint in the case of upper, um, sorry, upper, no, my mind, above knee, I'm sorry. <laughs> upper extremity? I know, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, uh, above knee, yes. Uh, so in order to do that, you have to have a mold because you have to replicate the shape and size and all of the little intricacies and kind of the nooks and crannies of your residual limb because it, it will be a perfect a perfect fit ideally. Um, and there are a few ways to do this. My prosthetist uses the plaster cast, which is the tr more of the traditional method. Um, or you can also use some, some higher tech scanning technologies. There's not one that's better than the other. It really, it depends on your practitioner and how they like to do it. Um, so for hand casting, which is the plaster method, it is a little bit dirtier, right? So when I know that I'm going to be casted for a new prosthetic, I'll make sure that, that I'm wearing um, like a long skirt or something that I don't care about kind of getting some of the plaster stuff on, even though it does wash off. If you're going to work afterwards or something like that, you really do want to have something to change into because um, it can get kind of messy. Um, so what they do is my prosthetist has me wear my liner and then they put like a casting sheath over top of it to keep everything clean. And then just like if you've ever, you know, broken an arm, they dunk the plaster in some warm water, get it going, and then just kind of wrap it around your limb like gauze. You do feel it kind of getting warm um, as it's starting to set up. And during the time, the prosthetist is, is kind of massaging it and getting it all smooth and making sure that it really is getting a good mold of the limb. I'm a BK, so I usually sit during this process. If you're an AK, typically you're standing between the parallel bars. Um, it's not painful at all. Um, sometimes it's, it feels a little weird, to be honest, when, when my prosthetist is, is kind of massaging the plaster a little bit, especially if he hits like a nerve pocket, but it's certainly not painful at all. 
Um, and then we just chat while the plaster hardens and then he slides the whole thing off or she. Yeah. And at that point, you know, you've got essentially a negative, a photo negative of your limb, right? Because what they've done is they've casted over your limb. And then from that, they make what's called a positive patient model, which is actually a replica of your limb. Um, this process, the hand casting approach, doesn't take a long period of time. Typically, 15 to 20 minutes tops uh, can be a little bit faster, could be a little bit slower if there's something unique going on. But again, prosthetist really is just trying to get the plaster around your limb, is uh, smoothing out the plaster as he does that or she does that. And they're also often applying pressure in particular spots where they know you are going to be carrying weight and they want to make sure that they've got a real intimate fit or that the that the socket is emphasizing certain parts of your anatomy um, versus others. So it's a, it's a pretty um, straightforward process. Now, there's also uh, scanning and computer-aided design or CAD-CAM, uh, computer-assisted design, computer-aided, uh, sorry, CAD is the computer-aided design, uh, CAM stands for computer-aided manufacturing. And um, I've actually had both methods done, Peggy. My, the first prosthetist I went to, um, the, the second, actually the first three prosthetists I went to and the one I go to currently all did traditional hand casting, just as yours did. But I had a period of probably about five years where I went to a prosthetist to use scanning technology. And uh, the, the the last time I used him, actually, he had, he had gotten something that at the time was really kind of groundbreaking. It's, I think, much more common now. But he basically had an attachment uh, over his iPhone, and he just walked around me, literally taking a 3D image of my limb by wander walking around me. It took about 35 to... 35 seconds to a minute. And at the end of that, he shows me the iPhone and there's my limb. And then what he does is he can upload that into uh, into some software and the software, uh, when you connect it to a carver, a carving machine, can actually carve out a replica of your limb. Um, so uh, it can be modified virtually. You know, literally they can take the limb on a computer and manipulate it in three dimensions and do what they want to do to it. Um, it's much faster than hand casting. It's less messy than the plaster approach for obvious reasons. Um, and we'll go into this a little bit more down the road, Peggy. But, you know, my I've talked to many, many, many prosthetists, and I think there is a real division among them about which method to use. And there are a variety of reasons why that's the case. I think um, I think it's fair for us to say that we certainly expect scanning and, and CAD to become more prevalent over time. Uh, I think in general, prostitutes who've been around longer, who started their careers doing hand casting, prefer to continue to do that versus going the computer-aided route. But um, neither of these ways is, I think, validated to be better or worse than the other. It's just two different methods. Has it been studied, do you know? There hasn't been, I, I don't think, a ton of research around which produces a, quote, better socket. And, and, and the reason for that is there's, there is not, honestly, that much research out there, in my view, that really talks about what, you know, what the right. core elements of a good socket are. There are many, many studies about different types of socket designs. And if you go online and look up socket design, you can actually find articles with clinicians um, advocating for their specific type. And there are all of these different names for them. Um, ultimately, um, 
you can attack any patient using a variety of different socket techniques. And if the prosthetist is skilled at what he or she does, any one of them could in theory work. Uh, so I don't think there are real clear parameters around how to do it best. Prosthetists vehemently believe that the method they use typically is the best for their patients. But um, I will tell you, I've worn, if you saw the sockets that I started out using as a new amputee and the kind of design that involved versus what I use today, they don't even look like the same animal. And yet, at the you know, I'm able to use either one of them equally well and be very active. They just, they're different philosophies about socket design. Interesting. So I guess the moral of that is you don't get caught up in the hype of, I only want to go to a prosthetist that scans because I love technology or I really want old school. What matters truly is the result. And that is, is your socket comfortable? How does it fit? Um, and did were they able to... to develop an accurate mold of your limb. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, prosthetists are clearly going to emphasize and advocate for the particular approach that they use because they believe it works. And if, if they've gotten good results, clearly it does. But, um, you know, I think, I think just as you said, Peggy, if a prosthetist sells you on hand casting or sells you on CAD cam and you go to them just because of that, you don't know anything else really about, you know, you haven't spoken to any of their patients about how their fit is. You haven't seen patients walking in that facility. Um, I would be reluctant to make decisions based solely on that. I think it's something you listen to. But I think more important is really what type of results do they get? And most prosthetists today have videos and um, patients you can speak to that can give you a feeling for, uh, you know, why, why that method might work particularly well for you or not. And if the method, uh, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, if the method really made a huge difference one way or the other, then we certainly would have included that on our prosthetist interview tool. Yeah, it's the, the problem with including that if we had chosen to do it is I think it would have created a lot of noise, frankly. And I, I don't. Especially- yeah, that's what I'm trying to say is that we did include it because yeah. it really comes down to the final result, not the steps that, that the individual chooses to take to get there. Yeah, I mean, just as as a simple example, Peggy, of a discussion that I know many prosthetists when they're evaluating what to do, especially going forward, you know, they the, the prosthetist isn't casting in a total vacuum from the business environment in which they operate. And there are many prosthetists today who are considering going towards scanning technology uh, in part because you can literally treat more patients a day doing it, right? And so when you've got cost compression, um, more difficulty getting reimbursed today than you had 10 years ago, uh, one of the ways that a prosthetist can try to offset that is to say, all right, I'm going to figure out ways to run my practice more efficiently. And one way to do that is not to do hand casting, not to spend 15 to 20 minutes minimum with that patient um, from the minute they walk in the door till the time they leave. But rather, I'm going to do a method. I'm going to use a method that can take only a few minutes. Um, You know, that's not right or wrong. That's just the reality of how businesses operate. And if they can generate a good socket using that method and be more efficient, more power to them. Um, and, and as I said before, I think a lot of, a lot of older prosthetists, people have been doing it for 20, 25 years. They really, 
they, they tend to be hand cast guys because they know it, they're good at it, and it's repeatable. And for them to switch to CAD would actually slow them down. All right. So I think we covered both options and and boiled it down to it really is the, the preference of the practitioner. And as long as they're able to develop an accurate mold for the next step, which is the diagnostic or the check socket um, after that is made. The check socket or diagnostic socket is made out of a hard, clear plastic. Um, it will have the components. Sometimes the components will be attached. I'm a BK, so when it's first brought to me, they are not attached. Um, and it's clear because the prosthetist can actually see through it and see how your limb is fitting within that socket. They can see if it's being squished certain areas, if you're getting folds, if you're not making contact. And um, it really, it, it's able, it allows the prosthetist to really kind of see how their socket mold is interacting with your limb and to make adjustments. Um, if you're lower extremity, the prosthetist will have you bear weight in your socket. Um, I'm a BK, so I will put on the check socket and then there's a stool that I kind of bear a little bit of weight on. If the prosthetist deems that it's safe, then he will put the foot and ankle system on and I'll bear some weight on it and let him know if it hurts, where it hurts. And the whole time he's down there and with a little Sharpie pen marking up the, the check socket to make modifications and where is he going to kind of grind things out or blow things out, give me a little bit more room, where can they be tighter? Um, you know, check sockets, That's this is never a comfortable appointment for me, Dave. I don't know about you, but it's always, it's kind of an exercise in frustration for me. I try to be patient. It's almost always a lengthier appointment. I'm talking like one to two, sometimes up to three hours. Um, and sometimes it, I kind of have that freak out moment where they bring me this check socket and I'm so ready to just get moving and get walking again. And it is so uncomfortable when they first bring it to me that I kind of, you know, I have to remind myself that this is part of a process and to calm down and to just try to vocalize as much as I can what I'm feeling. A good prosthetist is able to draw that out as well through leading questions. Um, and if you, you can't explain it specifically, just do your best. Um, the prosthetists are highly trained at kind of interpreting what we're trying to verbalize to where this socket needs to be adjusted. Yeah. And I, I think the, the most important part of, as you already said, of the diagnostic socket process is don't freak out. Um, you know, when you, when you weight bear in something that is really hard plastic, I will tell you is AKs are a little bit different, I think, because the, the top part of the socket is up in some areas that are pretty intimate, whether you're a male or a female. And when that is completely rigid and hard, um, which a check socket is, um, your natural inclination is to say, oh my God, I'll never wear this. This is, this is really painful and uncomfortable to be in. And it is, but it is only a diagnostic socket. You're not going to be walking in that um, full time. Um, and um, it's, it's important to keep that in perspective, especially as a new amputee, you know, you might be asking yourself if they just took a cast of my leg, you know, a few days earlier and then have me in a check socket, why wouldn't it fit perfectly? Shouldn't it fit perfectly? They just took the cast. And as a new amputee, 
your limb as it matures changes on a regular basis. You're losing volume because the edema from, from the surgery uh, gets pushed out of your leg. So the fluid, um, the, the swelling in your leg starts to subside. And um, what we always used to tell new amputees at my facility when they actually got fit with the, with the full prosthesis was the first day you wear this, it's going to fit perfectly. And tomorrow it's going to be a little bit worse. And the day after that, it's going to be a little bit worse. And when it gets to the point where you really are uncomfortable, you're going to bring it back to us and we're going to make modifications because your limb is changing shape that dramatically as a new amputee. Another point I wanted to speak to Peggy that you mentioned, you talked about, you know, sometimes you uh, you come with components attached to the diagnostic socket. And I think, uh, I don't actually remember myself, but um, my, my recollection is that particularly with new amputees, it tends to be just the socket, not the components because they've never been taught how to walk yet. So uh, for a BK, it might be different because you probably can stand safely on the foot, as long as you're not walking. Um, for an AK, I think it's pretty uncommon to attach the knee and the foot to the check socket as a new amputee and have you try to weight bear in it because you have no idea how to control any of the joints below it. Um, and so it tends to be just as you said, on a stool um, or on an apparatus that allows you to load weight safely, but there's no, no way for you to actually walk in it and more importantly, no way for you to fall, um, which is what prosthetists are concerned about at that stage of the game. Um, that being said, if you've been an amputee for a while, it is, it is very common practice for some prosthetists. If you, they've got someone who already knows how to walk, they'll put them in a diagnostic socket. They will actually bond the diagnostic socket, uh, to the components underneath it using fiberglass and they'll let them walk in it for a week to get, so the patient can really provide a lot of feedback about how it feels. Now, I will tell you personally, I always hated this. Um, I didn't do it often. I had one prosthetist who did it, and I really disliked it actively. I couldn't stay in a check socket for more than about 48 hours before I wanted to just throw the thing against the wall because it's uncomfortable. So um, just some a little more color there, though, on how diagnostic sockets and components and everything interact in different situations. I think, so when I first became an amputee, uh, my prosthetist used to always have me walk around. I would take the check socket home and wear it for a week or two weeks, and it would be wrapped with the fiberglass and, and everything was fine. But now I'm hearing more and more often that prosthetists aren't doing that anymore because there are stories about the check socket breaking, that hard plastic breaking, and cutting a patient's. Um, so if your prosthetist, if you prosthetist, you still allow you to take it home and now all of a sudden they're not, there are probably some reasons for that. And just ask. Yeah, there's no, again, there's no right or wrong way. These are, these are all totally common approaches. Um, so, you know, if, if you, if you, uh, as a new amputee, it's, this is all sort of a moot point as a new amputee, you're not going to likely be going home in a diagnostic socket because you've got to be taught how to walk before you can do anything with a full prosthesis. So um, that brings us to the final stage, Peggy, which is delivery. You want to talk that through that? It's such a fun day. I, I always love the, the delivery day. Don't you? It's exciting. It is. It's cool. I feel like a kid at Christmas, like, I'm going to go get my new leg. Um, and that is where you get your final sockets and all of the components and uh, you put it on, and if you were an experienced amputee, I, I just slip it on and walk around a little bit and say, yep, we're good to go. Or if it needs modifications, 
there are some things that my prosthetist can do at that stage to, to kind of hone in on the comfort. Um, if you're a new amputee, your prosthetist will teach you how to safely don and doff the prosthesis during this stage. Uh, you'll start between parallel bars, uh, holding onto the bars, putting a little weight through it until you're full weight bearing. Eventually, you'll progress to basic gait training through the bars. Only after you can safely walk between the bars uh, will you be able to leave the parallel bars and actually walk, usually through the hallway in the office or something like that. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of a lot of people become very frustrated, especially new amputees, when they receive their their first prosthesis because they kind of didn't anticipate how difficult walk relearning how to walk would really be. Um, it is a new skill. It's it's not like um, you know changing shoes. You're you're learning how to use a whole new body system, something that's attached to your body and replicating movements. And it takes a long time to to really learn to trust it and to really learn how to use it. So if you find yourself feeling frustrated um, or feel like you know everybody else is running and and you know doing all of these great things and I can't even walk to the grocery store, it's okay. Be patient with yourself. Show yourself some love. Don't get frustrated. You will get there. Everything. It's much better at this phase, I think, to go a little bit slower and to proceed with caution to make sure that everything is is progressing at a nice rate rather than trying to jump a few steps ahead um, and you risk developing some bad habits. You also risk getting hurt. Um so you really want to avoid both of those. And in order to do that, it really is kind of slow and steady at the beginning to hone in on the basic skills and really master them. Yeah, I think that's good advice, Peggy. And, you know, uh, a, a few a few wrinkles on some of the stuff you discussed. Um, you know, you mentioned starting between the parallel bars and progressing to weight bearing. If for some reason you had skin grafts and the grafts haven't fully healed, um, be prepared for the reality that even after you get delivered that full prosthesis, you will not be full weight bearing for weeks or often months um, until those grafts truly have healed all the way. And so you may get the prosthesis and be able to walk in it, but you will be uh, using crutches and extensively weight bearing on them uh, while using the prosthesis. So if that, if you are a patient with skin grafts, new amputee, uh, don't freak out if you sit there and say, well, wait a second, I thought I was going to get to walk. There is a, uh, there is a graft maturation process that has to take place before you can fully load and start walking. So just be aware of that. Set your expectations accordingly. Um, in addition, after you progress to walking outside the bars, it is very common, uh, it's probably pretty much the rule of the day, that when you leave the facility, able to use the prosthesis outside the bars, um, you will be using crutches um, just for safety uh, initially until you really get a handle on how the prosthesis works. Uh, that doesn't mean you'll be, uh, you know, throwing all of your weight on them with every step, but it's just uh, they're there to help you catch yourself if you stumble and fall. So again, if you, if you think that the day you get your prosthesis, you're going to 
walk in the parallel bars, walk outside of the parallel bars and walk out of the facility that day unassisted, especially as an above the knee or higher level amputee. Uh, it's probably a little unrealistic. Um, I, I was very lucky, Peggy. I, I had a very quick rehab and I was walking outside the bars quite quickly. But I remember the first day I went home, I, I had crutches. And I was using those crutches because, you know, I didn't know what it was like to walk in the real world outside of the hallway in my facility. Um, so that's that's very common. And you said be kind to yourself. And I totally agree with that. It's really important to keep your your emotional state pretty level and, and uh, remember the fact that, you know, the last time you learned how to walk, you weren't really conscious that you were doing it. Uh, you were six to 12 months old. So it was just automatic. And you were a lot closer to yeah, the ground. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, you, if you fell, you cried just as much, but it was, uh, it, it, it was uh, less dangerous. But on the other hand, um, this is an activity that like any other physical skill, the more you do it, the better you're going to get uh, more quickly. So um, I would encourage people put in as much rehab work as you can, given your clinical condition. If you've got heart problems and you've got multiple comorbidities, then it will be harder to be super aggressive in rehab. But be as aggressive as you can be within those constraints. Uh, the more you sort of say, ah, that was enough. And don't push yourself the longer it will take you to ultimately be successful with the prosthesis. And I will tell you, Peggy, I, I've met people who are highly coordinated and people who are not at all coordinated. And ultimately, ability to use the prosthesis tended to be dictated more by people's emotional state of mind, i.e. how positive they were and how willing they were to work than it was based on any innate talent and physical capability. People who had a good attitude and who put in the time tended to learn how to use the prosthesis faster than very, very coordinated people who were not in a good place. It's um, just the You need to keep in mind that, that if you have any other contralateral issues, health issues going on, that you can't really compare your progress to anybody else's. Everybody's journey is unique. So, you know, the, the trauma amputee is could recover very differently than somebody who, you know, had a long, arduous journey to try to save their limb and became very sick and was weakened and had a lot of other body issues impacted as well. So, you know, try as much as you can. I know a lot of people go online for support, go to support groups, and it's human nature, I think, to compare yourself to everybody else. But if you can take that judgment out of it and appreciate where other people are in their recovery and honor where you are in your own recovery um, and know that you're going to get there. I think that that'll go a long way. Exactly. I think that, I think that's a really good point. Just if you can try to on a lot of things, but especially on this, try to keep the judgment out of it. You will benefit from it and everybody else will benefit from it. Too. That's a really important point, Peggy, because I think people instinctively look towards people who are sort of the same age, gender, um, activity level or what they perceive their activity level to be as them. And then they say, I'm doing so much better or so much worse. And I can think of so many patients who were not quote strong walkers. Like they didn't walk in an anatomical way. And the reason they couldn't was because the trauma they had survived was so profound that there was literally no way physically that they could recreate a normal anatomical walking gait. Did they live full and complete lives? Did they have kids? Did they do everything that they wanted to do? 
Yes. Did it look as, quote, pretty as somebody who's a really strong walker? No. But it wasn't for lack of trying. It wasn't for lack of skill. It's simply what your body's going to allow you to do. Yeah. So those are the three main steps in detail. Peggy, would you like to summarize it? Sure. Uh, We went over the three steps. The process usually takes a few weeks, but it can be faster. Um, We went from getting the mold, whether it be through hand casting or through the CAD CAM, uh, which is more of a higher tech way to do it, so to speak. Um, And then we talked about how both of them have pros and cons. Neither one is better than the other. It really is kind of prosthetist choice and what he or she is comfortable doing will not impact uh, the final outcome as long as they're able to to obtain a good a good mold and at the end if you get a well-fitting and comfortable socket then it really doesn't matter which method they use to get to it um, the delivery uh, is an exciting day but don't kind of get too jazzed in the hype of this is the starting point of my whole life definitely take pictures it's a big moment but but show yourself some grace and try to be patient with your recovery and the more you practice the better you will get yeah and one thing peggy that i think uh i said we were going to cover and we didn't but it's here in the summary again so i'll just speak to it really quickly we we talked about the process usually is measured in weeks There are exceptions to that. And the most common one is if you end up going to a prosthetist who's out of town, and by out of town, I mean more than, you know, a few hours away, someplace that you go and you're planning on staying there uh, because it's so far away for a few nights. Um, There are facilities, particularly facilities that deal with a lot of out of town patients um, that you know, specialize in turning all of this around in 24 to 48 hours. So if you chose to go to somebody who has that kind of operation and who can work at that type of pace, the three steps we've described, my facility used to be one of these. um, We could have a patient come in, for example, from Canada, and we would cast and check socket them uh, in the morning. And then we would, uh, we would be fabricating the final socket and getting everything sort of teed up. And we were delivering the full prosthesis on day two and making adjustments, aligning it. Um, and they would stay the rest of the week to walk. But they were in the prosthesis inside of 48 hours. That's not the norm. I don't want people's expectations to be there, but there are situations in which it is possible to move more quickly than the three steps over three to four weeks, which I think is the more common approach in the industry. Well, I know my prosthesis doesn't take three to four weeks, um, but again, mine tends to do some some more of the destination work, so I think that they are equipped for that. And that's something if you're still in the interview phase to just ask, you know, how long does it usually take? in these different phases, what kind of timeline can we expect? Yeah. Yep. It's a fair question to ask. And and you'll learn something about the prosthetist and, and how they're set up to, to run. Um, you know, faster isn't always better, but um, if they can work at pace and get you a great socket and all other things are equal between two facilities, then you might choose the, the one who can deliver a great socket in, you know, a week or 10 days as opposed to the one who takes a month to do it. <laughs> All right, Dave, I think we covered it. Well, it was great talking to you, Peggy. Great talking to you, too. I'm sorry my mind's a bit flubby today. It's been a long time. You're just, <laughs> you're, you're just recovering from Scott keeping you up last night screaming at the TV because of the big Washington Capitals win. Oh, he is so happy. 
He has, he has waited 20 years for this. He is a diehard, God bless him. I mean, he, he loves the Washington Capitals and Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he knows he how to pick them. He can't catch a break. So they're finally moving on to the next section. I, I don't know what it's called. I, they're um, in the conference finals. They're, right. They're in some sort of finals now that they haven't been to in 20 years. I try to be a good yes. hockey wife. I will make the dip and I stay out of the way when the game is on. But other than that, I don't really. Here's, all, here's what you need to know. They win four more. They go to the yes. Stanley Cup. They win four more. Yes. They're the champs. Yes. So we have eight more games to win. Um, but, but, oh, my goodness. He was so excited. So happy. So happy. Which is good because <laughs> I, I'm happy for me. Because when every other year when they they blow it in in the playoffs, which is true cap style, um, he's just miserable for. Like oh, I know it's awful. So. It's truly awful when your when your team yeah. goes down. I you know I lived it after the Super Bowl this year. Not pretty. Yeah, I I don't really relate. I I don't get that, but I appreciate that other people feel that way. And I've learned to duck and cover for the first few days after the watch, you know, after the Caps blow it. But who knows? This could be our year. So go Caps. I think that's a very prudent approach that you're taking. Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. If well, you don't, great. if you are listening, I will put this out there into the universe. If you are listening and you don't care either way who wins the Stanley Cup, please just root for the Capitals. <laughs> we could use all the help yes. we can get. So you know. Because if there's one thing that's scientifically proven, it's that fans really do influence the outcome of games by exactly. watching them on TV. And, and you know, yes. Yeah. So whatever rituals you need to do to get the Capitals to win, I would consider it a huge favor. All right. There you go. All right. Duly noted. All right. Share your stories with Take us, care. everyone. Take care, Peggy. Bye. Bye.